Belta, you are the former assistant secretary for the Department of Interior's uh, Insular Affairs, correct? Mm-hmm, correct. And you also uh, ran against uh, Madeline Bordalio for a Guam delegate in the most recent general election. and um, In the most recent primary election. Primary election, yeah, yes. correct. So, yeah, um, it's good to have you here. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your experience? Sure. No, I, I, I appreciate being able to uh, to sit down with you during this, uh, during this podcast, and uh, thank you, everyone, for, uh, for listening. Um, my experience um, goes over a number of years. Um, I actually started in the politics uh, after I dropped out of college, and I had met former Ricky Bordalio. Um, that's where I really got in tuned with what former Governor Bordalio believed, his vision, his continuing vision for the island, um, and just his perspective in general. Um, I went from there to uh, work in the legislature for a number of years, and I went back and forth and uh, ended up eventually finishing uh, uh, college. Uh, from there, I had an opportunity uh, to work for our then-delegate Robert Underwood um, back in 1998 uh, to join his staff uh, out in Washington, D.C., and I took full advantage of it. Um, I wanted to see what it was like to you know, play in that sort of environment uh, at, at a national level. I stayed with Mr. Underwood for about a year and a half on his personal committee staff before uh, being offered a professional staff position on the Committee on Natural Resources on the House side. At at the time, it was uh, chaired by uh, George Miller of California and uh, took advantage of that. Um, And while I was on the committee staff, as professional staff, the, the distinction is between personal and uh, committee staff is that uh, committee staff tends to retain the institutional knowledge of the committee for the party that you serve. For me, I'm a Democrat, so I serve on Democratic staff. And and because you're able to focus on particular issues, you start developing uh, your expertise and your institutional knowledge of, of, uh, of these issues. And for me, it was um, uh, Mr. Miller uh, had me work alongside some other colleagues on territorial issues, so it was it was good. I was a person who hailed from a territory and was now on the committee staff uh, working on territorial issues. Uh, fast forward, uh, Democrats uh, eventually took control of Congress. We became the majority again. Uh, Mr. Miller went to Ed, Ed in the workforce and um, as chairman, and Nick Rahal from West Virginia became our chairman. And he moved me into an even more senior position by uh, making me the subcommittee staff director for subcommittee on insular affairs um, at the time, and then later on added oceans and wildlife. Um, that culminated uh, like about 12 years of experience on Capitol Hill um, where I was. And then after a number of years, of course, um, uh, President, former President Obama was elected in 2009. And, uh, you know, at the time, the position within the Interior Department, the political position was uh, was a deputy assistant secretary, uh, and that was 
a secretarial appointment. It was a political appointment, but it was, it was at the secretarial level. Uh, back in the Clinton days, uh, and before Clinton took office, there was an assistant secretary for insular issues, uh, which was um, which was removed when Clinton was in office. Al Gore was going through uh, Vice President Al Gore was going through the government. They tried to provide more efficiencies, and so part of that efficiency was getting rid of political offices that they that they didn't see the value of having uh, at a presidential appointment. After President Obama was uh, elected, uh, the delegates from all the territories and other um, other members of Congress and other stakeholders who were interested in elevating that position uh, requested President Obama to reinstate it as a presidential appointment um, requiring Senate confirmation. And so the um, that was a recommendation, I guess, uh, to the transition team for uh, for the Obama administration and the president had agreed um, that they would reinstate it at a, at a presidential appointment level and I was considered for the position so I uh, I left the hill after having my interviews with the secretary with the then secretary of the interior Ken Salazar and um, during my time to uh, my clearance I left the hill uh, moved over to the Interior Department as a senior advisor to uh, Secretary Salazar, and then eventually after my clearance was done and my paperwork was sent to the Senate, went for my Senate confirmation hearing uh, in front of my oversight committee, which was uh, Energy and Natural Resources in the Senate, and uh, was soon thereafter uh, confirmed by the Senate to, to hold the position, um, which I held for um, Obama's first term. Uh, so four years. And that's kind of my political history uh, in a nutshell, and I guess where my, uh, where my experience um, uh, comes from in terms of being able to work not only with Guam, but also having the responsibility during my time in office and also during my time on the Hill of being responsible for uh, policy uh, towards U.S. territories, inclusive of Caribbean and, and the Pacific, as well as the political relationships with the uh, with the freely associated states in the Pacific. I mean, coming up under the wing of uh, Robert Underwood, did that affect your outlook on uh, issues like uh, native sovereignty on Guam and um, Guam's political s status? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think both, you know, I've, I've had some of the greatest mentors in my short political career, um, starting off with, uh, you know, with the former Governor Bergaglio, Mr. Underwood, who uh, I considered a, a very strong mentor of mine. Uh, and there are others, former Governor Guterres, um, our current delegate, Madeline Berdayo. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the the work, I think, that carried on uh, while Mr. Underwood was in office, I kind of came in at the tail end. So there was a lot of Commonwealth consideration activity uh, early on in his term because he was elected in 94. By, by 1998, there were, uh, I think there were issues that confounded the effort to move forward. Um, uh, during um, uh, during the Bush uh, during the Bush administration, so it wasn't as high a, a, a priority uh, for the office at the time. I think just because of the experience in the in the years just before I got there. Uh, but nevertheless, I mean, self determination and political status uh, has always been and will continue to be, I think, a topic that uh, all delegate offices, uh, including. The local, uh, local political leadership here uh, needs to wrestle with. 
I think I, I think I benefited from my time on the committee, um, learning and understanding self-determination and decolonization and those efforts uh, to achieve those, not just through the lens of Guam, but also for a lot of the work that we did with, uh, with Puerto Rico mm. and, uh, and their effort to try to uh, uh, consolidate an effort uh, locally and then uh, bring, those, uh, bring their desires at the federal level and kind of how we wrestled with that uh, within Congress, which is very, you know, it's very interesting. It's very, um, uh, it can become partisan, and it was, you know, partisan to, to some degree uh, with Puerto Rico. Uh, you get different stakeholders involved. You get different, oddly enough, you get different members involved. I think there was a member from, uh, from Louisiana uh, who was a member of the House, and then I think in the, in the next election he became a member of the Senate, and he had very strong feelings that about free association um, uh, for Puerto Rico, enhancing uh, the free association, which is a, uh, one position that one of the political parties had taken down there. Um, and, that, and then apart from that, I mean, he wasn't Puerto Rican or anything, didn't really understand what his history was with the issue, but then you have members of Congress who were of Puerto Rican ethnicity, but were serving as full members of the House from uh, from Illinois, from New York, and they represented uh, constituencies that were Puerto Rican and were, um, uh, you know, expatriates of Puerto Rico living in the U.S. mainland, and trying to balance their concerns based on those constituents that were living in the U.S. mainland, and <clears throat> you know, on some level, you try to anticipate or you 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 start to learn that those members. Um, whose constituents uh, and their constituents probably preferred statehood because they were living in a state. Um, but at the same time, when it came to talking about how to move forward with Puerto Rico and how to garner the, um, the will of the people, do you, include those, do you include those constituents in the vote for Puerto Rico, which is something like Guam right now, right? We have our voter registry, and who do we include? Yeah. Is it just those on island? I mean, we... Even before we include, even before we talk about who participates in the election um, of those who were here in 1950, do we include those who were here in 1950 that have not lived here for 10, 15, 20 years, have no intention of living? What will they will they want to participate? Um, those are very you know difficult issues, and for uh, for Puerto Ricans who were residents uh, uh, in Puerto Rico. You know, they had strong feelings that Puerto Ricans who didn't live in the in Puerto Rico shouldn't be able to participate because they would essentially have two votes, right? They would be able to participate there, and they would have their participation from their members of Congress who eventually would have to uh, ratify uh, a final disposition uh, for, uh, for political self-determination uh, for Puerto Rico. So it was very, a lot to navigate through um, when you're dealing with those things. And, you know, that's just the House side. We're not even talking about Navigation on the Senate side of Bob Menendez, and, you know Senator Menendez, and and others who were there. Interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, what's the dynamic like over there? I mean, I I took Dr. Carlo Corbin's class uh, last summer, and he was talking about how like there's a strong uh, pro statehood um, contingency, I guess, and uh, it's either statehood or um, status quo. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I mean, but but now of course they they've enacted Promesa, which gives uh, federal oversight for uh, financial issues, right? Yeah. So um, has 
do you think any of that's changed since or uh, uh probably not i mean they have uh, they just elected um the son of a former governor uh pedro rosell they elected his son as governor and uh he's a statehooder so you know their their political parties down there are are um, um reflect your desire for what future political status you want right there's not a republican or a democrat down there there are statehooders commonwealthers uh and independistas mm. and uh and you can be a statehooder and still be a Democrat, like their, like their former resident representative was, right? Um, uh, who who ran for governor and was defeated by uh, Rosell. Uh, or you can be uh, a Republican, which I, I'd have to double check to see where Mr. Rosell uh, uh, sides on politically when you go to the U.S. mainland and if you kind of more identify yourself with a Republican or Democrat. But I think there was a former. Former governor, female governor, um, maybe three governors ago from Puerto Rico, uh, uh, who was a Republican but a statehooder. Um, uh, in terms of where members of Congress lie right now, I'm, I'm really uncertain. Um, uh, I, I know that the, I know that members who are of Puerto Rican ancestry still remain there. They have strongholds in their district, and I'm sure those positions remain. But you know, there's there there's such a uh, there's a new crop of you know members of Congress that that composition of of Congress has changed you know just over the past you know five or ten years and you have the average age I think of a member of Congress is like I think it was 53 the last time uh, I looked or it could be even younger than that and trying to educate those members and have them take interest of what their responsibility is um, as a member of Congress and the responsibility that you have as a legislator for the country and that Congress has uh, uh, has authority over U.S. territories uh, sometimes is a, is a difficult thing for to communicate and, and make sure that they understand that, that they have to own that responsibility. Um, and not everyone does, you know. They listen and, and they may get swayed from you know, from interest groups or someone who comes and talks to them for, for other reasons. I want to ask, uh, what's your outlook, I guess, for, for political status uh, talks? And um, what's your take on the climate now of, mm -hmm. of these conversations? Well, um, uh, definitely education needs to occur, you know, within our community. And I think um, uh, the Independence Task Force is probably... Uh, the ones at the forefront of being active and trying to engage the community and just other stakeholders to make them understand that the uh, political status that they are in favor of, uh, trying to understand what that is. Um, uh, you guys seem to be the, the they seem to be the most active uh, in terms of trying to educate uh, the public. You know, for my part, when I was Assistant Secretary, I, I did commit at the time uh, uh, $300,000 uh, to try to start that effort. And I wasn't able to uh, execute that before I left, but my successor executed it. And I think that's why we're, that's where we are today, right? Yeah. The utilization of that 300,000 or uh, either in total or in part to educate uh, the community. Uh, it's going to take leadership, though, you know, from, uh, from the top to be able to, uh, uh, one, ensure that the constituency on Guam and those who are going to participate in the election are educated because you want them going into the voting booth educated on what the future is going to be for the island. Uh, and two, to set um, achievable goals along the way that eventually uh, 
leads to um, uh, to the vote itself, because the vote itself right now, um, you know, pending uh, Judge Francis Tidinko Gatewood's right. uh, decision, um, you know, could eventually uh, be further challenged, which would uh, hamper the efforts of moving forward. But, but nonetheless, um, even anticipating that in the future, you still need. Um, political leadership to be able to uh, set the goal and aspiration uh, for the plebiscite itself and something that's achievable. Um, I don't know how much of a service it was uh, to be able to, uh, just in this last election, um, I think less than a year out from, from the general election to announce that you know the goal was to have the plebiscite take place within that same year, within, right? Yeah, within that same year, within ten months. Um, I don't know how much of a disservice. I, I actually, I think it was a disservice to to the effort itself. Um, this is a very uh, meaningful and serious issue that um, uh, that Guam has been um, trying to achieve for for quite some time. And uh, you know, we have to be very deliberate in our actions. And part of that is having political leadership that understands that and approaches the issue uh, with deliberation, uh, keeping in mind that uh, our community needs to be educated, uh, and then carrying out uh, uh, and then carrying out the plebiscite itself. As it stands now, do you think we have the, the leadership uh, required of uh, the self-determination talks? Or? Well, I think, I mean, if we just start at the top yeah. with, uh, uh, with our current administration, the Calvo administration, I mean, I was encouraged with the, with the level of engagement um, uh, that Governor Calvo um, uh, took upon himself uh, as, the, as the island's chief executive to try to set the date um, uh, for the plebiscite, encouraged by the level of engagement. Um, I, I hope he continues to have that sort of uh, engagement uh, uh, with the community and with the different uh, status task forces. Uh, in terms of uh, legislatively, uh, the the new group of senators, um, yeah, I think my sense is, you know, that uh, uh, that they would be willing to move forward uh, uh, as well. I, I think a lot rests though with uh, with this current uh, decision that that everyone's awaiting right. from uh, from Justice Tidinko Gatewood to to try to figure out how how we're going to move forward, if we're going to be able to move forward, or if it's if it, or if we have to go down the road of uh, an appeal, um, it's been it's been some months now, so it's yeah. a, it, it's a, it's a little worrying um, uh, to try to determine or try to forecast what her, what her decision. Uh, the court ruling in Saipan, right, about a, a non NMD uh, citizens being able to vote on issues of land ownership, right? Mm -hmm. So, do you do you think that that might have uh, some implications to? Uh, our judges uh, ruling over the who can vote in our plebiscite? Uh, yeah, I mean, possibly. I mean, you know, you, you, she has to be able to take into consideration all sorts of um, uh, uh, opinions that would justify her uh, her final decision. Uh, at the same time, you have, you know, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals years ago um, uh, agreed to uh, uh, land ownership restrictions in the Northern Marianas as well. So you have, you know, one decision that... Um, uh, that speaks to not excluding uh, people to be able to uh, cast their vote uh, on a particular issue when it comes to land, but then at the same time you have uh, you have an opinion from uh, from the courts that uh, that say that you know Congress does did does have the authority um, under uh, 
uh, the territorial clause to be able to restrict land ownership yeah. uh, in a U.S. territory. Yeah. Interesting. And then we have insular cases, you know, yeah. uh, hovering above all of us, uh, you know, which was uh, decided at the Supreme Court level, which we haven't really figured out um, in full. Yeah. You know. Especially now that Trump has been appointed uh, president or, you know. Elected president. Elected, yeah. Don't say appointed. He's no, going to come after you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So since he's been elected and. Uh, he's going to tweet you. Yeah. <laughs> he's, uh, it seems like he's been pretty, um, pretty productive on his end, signing executive orders and whatnot. But uh, what, what could you say about, um, like, what's the forecast, I mean, with Trump in power now and the people that he's, uh, he's uh, chosen to mm-hmm. guide his office? Um, what does that mean for uh, indigenous rights and uh, political status talks here in the in the Pacific? Yes. Well, I think for us out here, uh, uh, it's really still unknown, right? Uh, uh, President Trump has been in there for less than a week now, and he's been very active on campaign promises that uh, uh, that he made during uh, or promises he made during during the campaign. Um, I read an article where uh, it seemed to indicate that that he was not going to. Uh, uh, reinstate uh, the executive order that created the White House initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Mm-hmm. So in terms of our community that we share with other Asian Americans um, and just uh, those issues treated at a national level and, and the attention then the attention that those AAPI issues received from the Obama uh, from the Obama administration, uh, the fact that uh, we're hearing now that President Trump is not going to reinstate the executive order, I think it's the first troubling sign um, uh, for indigenous issues and um, minority issues just in general uh, across so, the board. Yeah, so the AAPI, uh, what is that exactly? I'm not too familiar. So the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders uh, was something uh, that President Obama had signed as an executive order to create the group. Um, there was uh, appointed uh, commissioners who were appointed that represented um, uh, different segments of the Asian American Pacific Island mm-hmm. community, okay. and then also uh, federal agencies participated um, uh, within the group itself. So during my time in office, I was the uh, Interior Department's representative uh, for uh, for the President's initiative for the uh, for the task force, I guess. And then there were others. Um, Mary O'Connor, the president of Guam Community College, was the most recent. Um, I think commissioner is what they were called. So she was a commissioner on the uh, on AAPI, and and that that task force uh, was responsible for trying to address AAPI issues, uh, kind of from the White House level, because it was created by executive order. So they went out and um, they had a very diverse uh, agenda, um, but always trying to make sure that the uh, the Asian American and Pacific Island communities that those issues were identified and that they were trying to work mm-hmm. to have them addressed. Uh, we even addressed at one point uh, the participation of AAPIs, not just in the federal workforce, but at what levels do they, at what uh, what positions of um, that they occupy in the workforce, and how many have risen up to, uh, uh, to higher uh, GS levels, mm-hmm. uh, leadership levels within, yeah. uh, within there, and try to have a plan in place to uh, to try to mentor other AAPIs who were within the federal workforce and try to have sort of a mentorship program to ensure that there were opportunities for them to, 
to go up the ladder and take uh, more positions of leadership within the bureaucracy. Interesting. Yeah. So because Trump did not uh, sign that executive order, none of that work will happen. Yeah, I see. Interesting. <laughs> so that might be the first. That might be the first indication. At the same time, you know, um, I try to stay encouraged, listening to news, um, listening to news that Governor Calvo and Governor Torres from the Northern Marianas, you know, were appointed early on, right after. Um, President Trump was elected, that they were, I think, part of the transition team that um, uh, that were supposed to advise the Trump transition team on Pacific Islander issues. Mm-hmm. And um, I think President Trump had um, made a commitment to establish a position within the White House um, that territories could uh, to go to, which is important. If you have if you have somebody who's designated within the White House. Uh, to handle this issue, that that's important to move your issues forward. Um, uh, I haven't heard. Um, I, I I assume that there's continued encouragement with um, uh, with the Trump administration um, to maintain the position of Assistant Secretary for Insular Areas as a, as a presidentially appointed, Senate confirmed uh, position. Um, I hope there. I haven't heard anything that they're not going to. So so that's encouraging. Um, now thinking. Uh Regionally, I guess um, Trump, of course, uh, uh, decided to remove America from the TPP. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my knowledge is all very cursory of this, but um, ideologically, I mean, what what does that mean for Guam? Well, one of the questions, even with the TPP, even with the TPP, is what did it mean for Guam? I don't I, I don't know that that was clearly spoken about by the Obama administration, or you know, and, and us realizing in Guam how that how that agreement was going to be a benefit to our economy or if it was going to be a detriment to, a, to our economy, how were we going to um, uh, address it? How were, how was our economy uh, be able to benefit and our businesses be able to, uh, to benefit from that? The fact that President Trump has withdrawn um, the United States from TPP, uh, yeah, I mean, it continues to leave questions. Uh, I think the more important question is recognizing um, – Recognizing um, the fact that we continue to be a U.S. territory, we right. we can't exercise um, uh, we can't exercise what what we would need in order to benefit and prosper um, and have our policies move forward as an island because we fall under the territorial clause. We are U.S. territory. We're we're constrained in that mm-hmm. sense. We don't have the rights even of states. Um, uh, and and so I think it begs the question. It should beg the question. Um, we we see the effects of what an executive order could do to a U.S. territory, what a congressional action could do uh, to a to a U.S. territory. The type of voice that we have to uh, to affect those actions, and if we continue to realize that um, um, we're at a we're short sighted. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, with our representation and just kind of the political effort that we can put forward uh, for our betterment, what do we do in the long run? Will we, and that's the self-determination question, right? Yeah. What do we do in the long run? Do we integrate um, and become a part of the union? Uh, do we do, you know, do we go down a different route with free association or, or independence? And how do we address, I think the larger question also when you talk about political status is how do you address the concerns of a community that has um, 
been a part of the United States. Uh, we've been, we are U.S. citizens, and though we don't feel all the benefits of U.S. citizens, there are very important benefits as U.S. citizens that we know we have, um, and, and how to allay fears uh, from people in our community that doing anything different, short of integration, um, it's going to be a change, but it's not change that you need to be afraid of. Um, yeah. uh, we're, 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 we're changing to be able to uh, assert our own leadership and our own decisions, uh, whether that is within the union, and integration means that you have to have the union accept you as well, so it's not just us saying we want to be a part of the union. Congress has to accept that and legislate and put into place articles of incorporation, right? That's the process. Once they say, yeah, you're going to become a state, then there's like a, um, I think like a five-year plan with article, articles of incorporation that that finally bring you at the end of the five years into, into the union as a state. Uh, or do we just go down, um, you know, a different road with free association or, or independence? But certainly status quo is, um, I think in the uh, status quo is just not uh, is something I don't believe that is uh, sustainable, yeah. you know, for the future. Uh, and yeah. it's it's also no longer an option as well, right, for the the publicite. So yeah, well, I mean, it shouldn't be right because yeah. uh, you can't. Uh, it's not an internationally recognized right. uh, form of self determination or status of self determination. Yeah, status quo is not. Uh, you know, I chose status quo. <laughs> I'm free. No, you're not yeah. free. You know. Right. You still fall under the territorial clause. You're still subject to, uh, you know, international speak, your administering authority. Could you ponder what, uh, which uh, <laughs> status might be the most uh, constructive, I guess? Or what, what could we do under uh, integration or free association or independence? Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, uh, I think free association and independence are obviously, you know, the ones where you, uh, where you have the opportunity to really exert your authority, exert your membership uh, uh, within the world as a country that should be recognized. You, uh, you are able to uh, be, become a member of the United Nations and you have a full voting right within the United Nations. You can carry on diplomatic relations with other countries. Um, a little bit different if you're in a free association because you still have that, um, um, that strong relationship with your previous administering right. authority, your previous colonizer. Uh, uh, which is something which is something that you know like you were talking about radical yeah. kind of the radical position i remember you know 10 15 years ago when you'd say administering authority they'd be like oh my gosh <laughs> saying he's calling the united yeah. you know they're calling the united states the administering authority but yeah. you know um, sometimes that's the reality and you need yeah. to be able to speak to those uh, sorts of reality with um, with integration i mean you know what to expect when it comes to integration right the integration 50 times before mm -hmm. and um, the, fifth, the 51st time, short of, I think, um, a language requirement, which has come up in the discussions with, uh, with uh, Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. uh, possibly wanting to become a state or, or, or expressing uh, a desire to become a state and what articles of incorporation would look like with, um, uh, with Puerto Rico. There's, there has been debate opinions of members of Congress that, uh, you know, like, I believe unlike any other territory that was going to be integrated in the United States, that they would, uh, they would mandate, there's talk about discussion of mandating to ensure that, you know, English 
as the primary language would have to occur within Puerto Rico before they would as mm-hmm. as one as one element before they would become uh, a state. But you know, short of that, I don't think we need to necessarily have that problem. And Professor Bavaco might uh, you know is probably angry about that. <laughs> could could be angry about that because he's he's a strong proponent you know for uh, for reviving the language. But I think in terms of integration, we know what to expect. It's not going to deviate much because integration, you become a full-fledged member of the union and having your voting representation in Congress, full voting representation in Congress on both sides of the uh, of the Capitol, the House side and the Senate side, um, um, you're equal to, uh, presumably equal to every other state in terms of uh, your political power. Mm. Um, I think it's a little bit more unknown with the free association and independent side because you're not integrated those those same rules don't apply but certainly you have uh, you have the ability to exercise um, uh, exercise your political power more on, on an international stage because you're a member of the international uh, community I have I I personally uh, don't have um, don't have a fear of change um, I think it's a natural progression, and it, it's you know m- maybe I'm uh, I'm benefiting from those who have come before me who have raised this issue of self determination and were called radicals, um, but that but that that discussion over time has become um, more accepted, uh, and it's more now of a of a educated discussion that we need to have with our community. Our community needs to learn about that rather than just perceive it as so small group of people with, uh, uh, you know, with radical ideas about change. Um, I think eventually change will have to come. Uh, we can't remain a U.S. territory for another hundred years. It's yeah. just, uh, it is really unsustainable and a disservice that you have Americans that don't, it, if you're going to be part of America, then you'd be part of America. Um, and if you're not, then um, I'm, I'm not afraid to change, cool. yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it'll take a lot of work. I mean, trust me, uh, it'll take a lot of work, a yeah. lot of education, a lot of. I talked about allaying fears of the community, and um, and the community will want to. Community and industry will want to, you know, pick things apart. Okay, well, you know, and, and I've heard it, and and a lot of the, a lot of the questions you can't answer. Well, what does that mean for our business community? Does that mean that? You know, we have a budget of $420 million and now we're not going to have the United States, and there's been studies that the United States accounts for, you know, X hundreds of millions of dollars. So on year one, after we become independent or free association, what's going to happen to the $200 million? Who's responsible for that? Those are legitimate concerns. But uh, personally, I don't, I don't believe it's something that should stop us from continuing to have that conversation. Then I don't want to say figuring it out, but... Um, you're not going to go from a U.S. territory to a completely su- successful, independent nation. I mean, there's growth, yeah. right? There's growth. The question is, do we have growth as a, as a U.S. territory? And what kind of growth do we have? And are we in control of our own growth? Or is someone who uh, has authority over us, either as a country or even as a Congress under the territorial clause of the Constitution, um, will they allow us to grow? We're not even treated fairly in terms of programs that are passed by Congress uh, for federal funding. We get one third of one percent, and then you know of a program. It's, it's commonly a, a formula that's used in uh, uh, when you're 
uh, in legislation for a program. Territories will share one-third or one-third of one percent of this program will be reserved for territories, and, and of that one-third of one percent, the territories will compete for it. Mm. Come on. Yeah. Um, when it comes to Medicaid and Medicare funding, you have areas of the country, U.S. territories, that are challenged with their economic development, um, yet, yet we're required to put up more in terms of being able to participate in Medicaid and Medicare funding. Uh, but, you know, we're, I'm, we're more challenged in California. You know, California gets a better deal, and so do all the other states for that matter because they're, you know, they're treated equally. So their share, their, uh, their share of uh, what they have to participate in is much better than ours. But the U.S. territories are the ones that are strapped to develop, and there's no other programs to help us develop, right, our economy. Um, yeah, it's a long road ahead, but it, it, it's a road that, that, that needs to have this conversation, and, and at some point um, we need to have the, you know, need to have the, uh, the plebiscite itself and, uh, and then figure out how to move forward from then. I don't know if it will happen in my lifetime. I'm, I'm hopeful at least the plebiscite will certainly happen in my lifetime. I think I'm fairly confident of that, but, but being able to celebrate our next step as an island, whether we are the state of Guam or whether we're uh, the freely associated state of Guam or we're, whether we're independent Guahan, how do, how do we get to that next step and when will that next step uh, occur will be, uh, will be difficult and will take money, time, resources, patience, uh, and a lot of education for our people. Sometimes we talk about uh, uh, being in our own little bubbles and you can certainly do that with uh, social media. You can sort of select a uh, um, the media that you consume and also mm -hmm. the people uh, who are producing content that you surround yourselves with. Mm -hmm. So um, sometimes uh, for myself, uh, that bubble comes uh, imploding whenever I read uh, a comment. Um, someone who, who hasn't taken the steps to educate themselves about these issues and uh, still expresses that, uh, that colonial fear of change. Mm -hmm. uh, people who are, who, um, uh, are maybe expressing self-hate self uh, with uh, things like, uh, oh, we don't have the leaders that are, that are strong or uh, smart enough to, to lead an independent Guam, or uh, we can't do it without the U.S., we, see that we receive this much funding. Uh, this is impossible. And uh, I really want to thank you for being here and uh, proving that you know, this is a talk that's taking place at all levels of society. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not radical. And uh, most of all, it is possible and inevitable. Yeah, so. it's not radical at all. It's yeah. a, it's natural conversation um, for uh, for a people or for an island. And when I say people, I, you know, I, I I think I'm talking about everyone who calls Guam their home, right? But it's uh, it's a natural conversation that that needs to occur when you're so inhibited from being able to uh, address issues that. Uh, that confound your island, that confound your economy, that prevent you from growth, and and you know we we have benefited from being a U.S. territory, but we've uh, you know at, at some level there has to be recognition that we've um, we're starting to outlive that. Mm. We're more educated, we're more sophisticated, um, and even those things alone shouldn't be the basis of change because um, our neighbors to the south of us, our island brothers and sisters. The Republic of Palau, from Federated States of Micronesia, and from the Republic of the Marshall Islands, they took a huge step, you know. And I think at the time that they took the step, that step in the '70s and into the '80s, I think it would be hard to argue that they were as educated 
or as sophisticated or even more educated or sophisticated than you know what, what we have now right in Guam so it doesn't necessarily require that sort of level of education and sophistication it does take a it does require a giant leap of faith I think we're in a more beneficial position maybe because it because this conversation has taken so long and and, and we've allowed it uh, whether by our choosing or not to be something that's organic that's gone from radical to hopefully more and more mainstream conversation and then eventually we graduate into into something else um, uh, it's certainly complicated but no I, I appreciate the opportunity to be able here to be able to be with you and, and talk with you about these issues it's, it's exciting you know and, and it's things that we have to think about I mean I think about it in terms of you know my um, uh, my children or my, my child uh, my daughter Gabriella and and uh, though she's has lived in the U.S. mainland right now, um, you know she comes to Guam every year for the past you know since since she was you know for the past five or six years, and I constantly educate her on on home and our island. I try to talk political status, but it's tough for you know for a thirteen year old. But she's exposed to those things. Yeah. She you know uh, she's a graduate of uh, you know the summer program over at uh, Harau Academy, so I try to make sure that she develops those roots. Mm. Um, but as she gets older, I always try to talk to her. We always talk about Guam and um, and where things should go or just how things should be. And, um, you know, at some point, I mean, uh, I hope she's not wrestling with these issues. I hope she's wrestling more with issues that, you know, how do we succeed now yeah. that we are something else rather than continuing this fight that her father and, and others have fought before her. I mean, it would be it would be sad if we're if I think when my daughter becomes that age into her 20s, into her 30s, that we're still talking about a vote. Um, yeah, so while, while you're here, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, Manny, you mentioned bubbles that, that we live in. And so Guam kind of lives in like a big bubble. Mm-hmm. And um, people, it's, it's interesting because people on Guam, even if in, in school you don't really learn about the government of Guam, you learn about the federal government, but mm-hmm. people here don't really understand sort of how the federal government works in terms of territories. There's some people will have ideas like of us being, you know, treated second class, not being respected, but then others will have ideas of us just being like any other place in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in terms of trying to help people on Guam kind of understand uh, like uh, the way that it works for the territories in DC. Like, how would you just kind of help to help to kind of open their eyes and think like, this is the you know this is how kind of people in D.C. you know whether they're Congress people whether they're bureaucrats this is how they kind of see us, and then thinking about like how can we use that then to kind of forward our agenda? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, you know it's it's complicated um, uh, in D.C. when you talk about territories because you know we don't have a firm policy as a country about. U.S. territories. We know that Congress has the plenary authority over U.S. territories and essentially can legislate how it wants to legislate U.S. territories. And that's, you know, uh, in the past and, and, and probably, you know, moving into the future, as long as we're a U.S. territory, there's always that political strategy of being able to take advantage of that. You know, you can treat Guam and uh, you can treat Guam differently because we're not a U.S. state. Uh, we're not a, a member of the union. But at the same time, 
when it works to our advantage, we say, well, you have to treat us, you know, similar to a state because we're a part of the union, right? Um, so we have used that to our advantage, uh, uh, admittedly. But when you're talking about um, real aspirations to no longer uh, have the moniker of, uh, or having the status of being a U.S. territory, being able to exercise um, uh, your free will uh, uh, for change, um, it'll take a, uh, uh, it'll be a monumental effort. Um, I mean, we, 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 we see the, uh, we see the path to the plebiscite as something that is difficult, educating the community, um, uh, educating our leaders, getting everyone to be able to participate. Uh, these are people who are presumably interested in the issue because Guam is their home. Now think about how you have to engage Congress um, with the 435 members of the House and then uh, your 100 members of the Senate who don't know, who typically don't, Guam doesn't pop up on their radar. And for those that it does pop on the radar, uh, I think typically and over the years, and this is arguable, but I, I think more or less people would agree, uh, for members of Congress, the, the interest that they have in Guam is is us as a strategic point uh, of interest for uh, for the nation. So you'll, you know, I think aside from the natural resources com committees in both the House and the Senate, I think the, the next committee maybe that, you know, might have uh, uh, the next uh, uh, institutional knowledge about Guam in, in, a, in a different, um, looking through a different set of lenses is probably the, the defense committees. Uh, and those would, you know, those would be the ones um, uh, that know the most about Guam. But when you talk about changing status, uh, either becoming a part of the union or doing something else, uh, that effort alone, uh, education, being able to get the legislation passed through Congress. Uh, we're not even talking about communicating with the administration yet. Communicating with the administration, what that effort entails, it will be a larger effort than simply the, our, our delegate from Guam and our and our uh, governor of Guam and our legislature having a Team Guam approach. Uh, that's not just going to do it. It really will take um, uh, effort and resources uh, to be able to, to make that to make that change, and I'm not sure that uh, anyone has really imagined what sort of um, resources need to be mustered for that. I mean, it's 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 resources like political will and energy, not to mention uh, money and funding, and you know, how are we going to, and, and what's the political will of Guam and its leaders to be able to make that investment and. Um, and how and when can we do it? I mean, we still need to get over the, the plebiscite, uh, but even just looking ahead and how to engage the Congress and the administration, who knows? We'll even be engaging Trump at the, you know at that point. I mean, we still have to get over our, our own plebiscite. Now, when we spoke before, you told an intriguing story about how when you were when you were at the Interior, and I believe there was a it was a meeting with some. I think Homeland Security immigration officials about Saipan and about mm -hmm. immigration stuff. Yeah. And so National Security Council meeting. National Security Council. And so, if you wouldn't mind sharing that story, just because I, if uh, I, because it shows, I think it illuminates for people kind of how things work in the absence of institutional knowledge, mm -hmm. in the absence of a coherent policy. Mm -hmm. And so, if, if you yeah. Could, so, so the 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 story is, uh, it was. 
uh, our effort to implement uh, legislation passed by Congress, which normalized the immigration policy of uh, the United States and extended it out towards uh, the Northern Marianas, who before then uh, had had control over their immigration. Um, and then the United States, we were normalizing it uh, to make it more in line with uh, uh, with U.S. policy. In doing so, we put some language in the in the legislation that allowed that one created a uh, merged or included CNMI in in an existing Guam visa waiver program, which was uh, which was actually established or created by Robert Underwood through legislation uh, during his time in office. So we included the CNMI in that, and we made an attempt to expand the countries that could uh, that could participate in the program. And for CNMI specifically, because they had such a unique history in terms of them controlling their their own immigration and the type of industries that they created for themselves and for their tourist industry, uh, China and Russia were the emerging markets. And so we took that into account, so we put some language in there that allowed for serious consideration of continuing... Um, continuing uh, the access uh, or CNMI being able to access China, uh, visitors from China and Russia. And as we were implementing it from an administrative level in the Obama administration, it caused um, uh, some concerns, some security concerns. So there was a meeting that was convened by the National Security Council, and it was uh, the Department of the Interior was represented, and I, I was that representative, DOD, uh, NSC, um, Get State Department, get other uh, enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies involved. And <clears throat> when it came to making the argument for uh, for CNMI to have continued access to, especially Russians, uh, there was a um, a member of the NSC staff who uh, wasn't. Uh, I can't. I can't recall that she was um, uh, had much knowledge of the. Of, of the CNMI, uh, but she certainly had an opinion about Russian visitors or Russia itself, and had it, and had expressed uh, her reluctance to be able to say, "Yeah, it's okay for you know Saipan to continue having access to, to Russia." And I think, uh, and I, I think I was sharing with you, short of having somebody there, which um, which was me at that time, having institutional knowledge and not only of the legislation, but also just of the CNMI and its, uh, how its economy has developed and what it relies on now. And I think short of, uh, and then also having kind of the uh, political muster because I was a presidential appointee, being able to explain to the NSC and everyone else around the table that, um, that one, Congress can do this, right? Uh, and uh, two, to do anything otherwise would... Uh, would just be contributing to a failed, uh, a failed economic policy, which we really don't have one. But short of not having one, if you have legislation that allows for uh, uh, for the economy to kind of stay afloat in the midst of their change from from a garment-centered economy to something else that they're going to, to develop, short of doing that, uh, we're allowing them to implode, and we're doing it on our watch merely for the fact that. One person has an opinion um, who's at the staff level that Russians shouldn't be allowed under any visa waiver program to be allowed into a U.S. Uh, onto U.S. soil. 
but you know the, the the distressing part was one I don't believe that she understood U.S. territories. She certainly didn't understand uh, the economy of the CNMI and the fact that that staff opinion, were it not for I think somebody who uh, who understood um, their issues, were it not for someone around the table to be able to express that, uh, uh, CNMI would, no, would would not have uh, had access to to Russian visitors. But I think as a result of the meeting and me being able to be there and advocate on that behalf and demonstrate and uh, and talk about that we don't we really don't have an economic policy so what else are we going to do um uh short of having that um yeah it would have been even more difficult for the cnmi to to develop see because it's it's i i think that story is very instructive because it shows that it's a room of people like you like you said trying to remind 400 members of congress or this bureaucracy that they kind of hold the keys. Mm-hmm. They are in charge of this. And so in the lack of institutional knowledge, in the lack of interest, they, they still get to decide. They mm-hmm. still get to determine. And so showing the like the, the real need then to tell the story of the territories, mm-hmm. to be there, to kind of sh- influence opinions and to remind of the obligation, just mm-hmm. that like that um you may think of this in your sort of narrow perspective, like sort of the staffer may have thought, Russians, I don't like Russians. Yeah. And that's probably all she thought. Mm-hmm. And if you hadn't been there, that would have prevailed because everyone would have been like, yeah, Russians are bad. We don't like Russians. Yeah, right no now. one else was talking around <laughs> the table, yeah. you know. Um, but, it, but it also underscores, uh, just to go further, it underscores the importance of we have now a political position that was reinstated by presidential appointment during President Obama, and we want to have that continue uh, remain at that position because it does carry a lot of weight within um, uh, at a sub when you're at a sub cabinet level that, that that carries weight throughout federal agencies and even your engagement with Congress. Um, but it's important now to ensure that our leaders, especially those who can influence uh, this incoming administration, selects someone who has knowledge about. The territories, not just that I, yeah, I visit. I went. I went to Guam once. Where I was down. My, my family used to go down to the Virgin Islands every summer when I was a kid. Not that sort of knowledge about the territories, but real substantive knowledge um, about about the territories. And granted, there are those who are few and far between in Washington D.C. that have those sort of chops. Um, so sometimes it means identifying. Uh, 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 our brothers and sisters who live in territories to be able to hold those positions uh, sometimes you know and and uh, that'll always be the that'll that that'll be continue to be a challenge but the most important thing is to try to make sure that whoever is going to uh, go into that position that uh, they understand and they have knowledge about the territories have some institutional um, uh, experience with them and have uh, and I think, uh, for our leaders and for people who live in the islands, that that we feel comfortable that that person, independent of you know opinions that they're going to have, understand that their main role, that one of their main roles in that position, is to advocate on behalf of our islands, and that's something that I always tried to remember that though I was a though I wore a federal hat, you know, I'm also from. Uh, 
um, I'm also from the islands, and I need to be I need to understand that they don't have a full voice around the government, whether in the congressional and legislative branch or in the administrative branch. And I have an obligation. Uh, I think when it doesn't cross lines with any sort of administration policy, and for the most part, uh, because the lack of a policy, a coherent policy, you help to set the policy, and you, you know, you, you're a gatekeeper on some level of the federal government and of the administration, uh, but you're also an advocate on behalf of the communities, and uh, it would be important to make sure that we always have someone there like that, because short of it. It's now an educate. Now we have to. In, now we have to educate the new political person who doesn't know anything about us, and you know we have a hard enough time educating our people in the islands about what we what we need to do. We talk about political status. Now we're talking. You know, now we're having to educate them. I mean, it'll be even more difficult to have the expectation that someone uh, who could be appointed that has no experience would be able to wrap their head around the injustices that each territory. Um, you know, has un- has undergone for more than a hundred years. Uh, cum- uh, you know, cumulatively, it's more than you know four hundred years when you talk about all the U.S. territories. But be able to wrap their head around that um, within the time frame that they're limited, which is you know a four-year term, uh, would be extremely difficult. And that means then that what they're going to carry out um, wouldn't always. We couldn't always be guaranteed that it was going to be necessarily substantive. Nor could we. Uh, nor could we have any assurances that um, uh, that we know that they would be able to advocate on our behalf. And so, um, so one one final question. So, thinking about sort of who is the next person that's going to come into the position that you were in at DOI, given your experience, um, you know, as somebody who comes from the territories and who kind of has 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 argued and fought in favor of the interests of the territories. Kind of what would you, especially on the topic of self-determination, kind of what advice would you give them? Well, I, um, I, for, for my part, um, you know, I had uh, an agenda early on that I wanted to ensure that was uh, uh, coincided as applicable with President Obama's priorities. And so we did some of those initiatives that clearly highlighted that we were in line with uh, with the administration's priorities, and that those priorities needed to be carried out in the territories, such as renewable energy, um, economic development, infrastructure, capacity building, those sorts of things. Uh, it it didn't allow me because we were doing that early on. I tried to plan out how we would um, how the agenda would would eventually evolve, and uh, given the experience I had on Capitol Hill and trying to think outside the box, so to speak. Um, I knew that self-determination, political status, would be something that uh, that would we would need to deal with, which is why we uh, committed at the time three hundred thousand. So, you know, knowing that uh, knowing that I committed three hundred thousand and that there was going to be education uh, for the community meant that uh, there was going to be hopefully some movement on this issue. And for the um, for our part of the house, the administration part of the house, how could we do things differently? And um, I think had I, uh, I, I think if I was going to pass on uh, uh, some knowledge, I guess, to the incoming assistant secretary, whoever that person may be, I think when it comes to self-determination, I would recommend uh, trying to uh, collaborate with your State Department colleagues 
who have the direct engagement with the United Nations and the, uh, uh, co the Committee on 24, uh, which is the decolonization, uh, the committee responsible for decolonization of all colonies um, as their goal, um, being able to engage them at that level and seeing what sort of energy and uh, momentum and understanding, really, uh, that you can develop. And really making also the State Department understand that this is as much of a responsibility of theirs as it is of the Interior Department as it is for the country because we continue to have uh, these areas that are uh, are disenfranchised. Um, and I'm not sure exactly how that all evolves, but I, I had a strong... I had I had a strong feeling that uh, you need to be able to bring in State Department and then others and make them realize that they are stakeholders in this as well. Um, so if I were to impart something to, to an incoming assistant secretary, I would probably ask them to maybe look at the issue through that lens and see how um, see how you can engage the State Department and others and uh, and educate on that level. And you have to kind of do it as the territory itself is preparing for its plebiscite because you don't you know, try to anticipate what's going to happen, what role and what responsibility you're going to have or your, your administration is going to have and start preparing people for that. Um, and, and so uh, I think uh, that's something worthwhile to look at, having that energy be uh, created between the uh, State Department and the Department of the Interior in trying to engage uh, the United Nations. You have any other questions? Okay. Thank you. Yeah. All right. No, thank you very much. No, I appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. We we covered that, right? That was that was a good coverage of that issue? Okay. That was no, that was very good. Okay. Good. Well, this is fun. Yeah. Fenatsu is created by the Media Committee of Independent Guahan. Independent Guahan's mission is to empower the Chamorro people to reclaim their sovereignty as a nation. Inspired by the strength of their ancestors and with the love for future generations, they seek to educate and unify all who call Guam home in order to build a sustainable and prosperous independent future. Feedback and questions can be sent to independentguahan at gmail.com, all one word. For more information, head to www.independentguahan.com or look for us on Facebook and Instagram. Ihinanganya Independent Guahan, Araba Yenafanataknya Yemantamoru, Pawatatuli Tati Diretota Komo Unashon, Gihilutano, Gini Minekut Niha Yemanyanata, Dani Guinezata Nuifamago Umtamotna, Inakekefan Manungo, Dan Nakekefanetun Todu Itato Siha, Nimanyasagagi Ininatano, Pawatanat Letfetna Ida Guahan, Ni Todu Ininasenata, Kosiki Senior Tafan Latla Maulik Motna, Fanatsu, Hita Latmun.